Father, tonight I just agree with my brother. We ask for your words and your teaching and your spirit to guide us through your word and to help us to see the things that you want us to see. I pray for encouragement, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, as well as for myself, Lord, that you would keep our eyes lifted up, that we would not become downtrodden, discouraged, negative, but Father, always looking up with a hope, the living hope in Jesus, and able to give answer, Lord, for the hope to which we've been called. Bless this time, Father, and imprint your word on each of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was driving along with Cheryl today, and I I told her, and I've already said this once or twice, I'm sure to you all, that the book of Jeremiah has been, to me, one of the more challenging studies we've done. Um, I don't know if I would say the most challenging, although it has felt that way at times, primarily because this incredibly important book of prophecy requires so much study just to get what's happening when. To understand the organization of it all, because Jeremiah does not organize, as we've talked about, chronologically. You're going along, you think you're right here with this particular king, and then suddenly you're thrust back to a time of another king. And and Jeremiah jumps around because he's more interested in the theme, in thematically teaching, than in chronologically teaching. He'll bring out stories out of order to contrast people or events, as we saw last week and we'll see again tonight. He sometimes inserts entire prophecies out of sequence so that we can see the prophecy right up against its fulfillment. Prophecy given 20, 30, 40 years before, and then in the next chapter we read, here we are as that prophecy is being fulfilled. We'll see that also tonight. But needless to say, for all of that, the book of Jeremiah takes thoughtful, methodical study. Not a hard book to understand. I don't believe any of Scripture is if we're willing to sit down and put in the time that it takes to understand. But as difficult and challenging as it's been, I have to say, 35 chapters in, I am so thankful for the difficulty. And I'm thankful for the challenge here. I'm thankful for the biblical workout. That's really what it is. I hope that when you come Wednesday nights, especially you're coming for a biblical workout. You're coming to be strengthened in your understanding of the Word, in your navigation of God's Word. Because the truth is, God doesn't dumb down Scripture. He doesn't do it. Yes, a child can understand the beauty and the simplicity and the wonder of the stories, but a theologian cannot plumb the depths of God's Word. So He doesn't dumb them down. He calls us to be diligent to understanding. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I quote that to you in the King James, because the NASB says it beautifully as well, accurately handling the word of truth, and that's a good translation. But the King James, I think, nails it a little closer, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing. So the book of Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophetic writings, again, that we have, must be rightly divided. It must be accurately handled. Tonight, we're going to get all the way through chapter 39. Four chapters tonight. The chairs are comfortable. I figure I got the time. Actually, we're going to move rather fast because there's not so much spoken prophecy that needs to go line by line. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of things that happen in in rapid and short order here in these four chapters. So we'll end in chapter 39, which is the fall of Jerusalem. 
It is the pinnacle moment of the book of Jeremiah. This is the moment we work up to through the whole book. And then after chapter 39, we deal with the aftermath of that fall. That's where we'll end up tonight. But as we begin in Jeremiah 36, and you can open your Bibles there, Jeremiah chapter 36. Even as we head up to Jerusalem for that final tragedy of 586 B.C., in chapter 36, Jeremiah suddenly jumps back 21 years. Back to the kingdom of Judah under the authority, under the kingship, the rule of Jehoiakim. And that's where we start in chapter 36. And he does this to relate something to us that's very important. It's, it's a story of one man's attempt to wrongly divide the word of truth as opposed to rightly dividing it. The year is 605 B.C. This is the year of the famed, you history buffs, the Battle of Carchemish happened in 605 B.C. when Babylon defeated Egypt. Egypt, the world power, finally was taken out by Babylon. Pharaoh Necho was unseated by Nebuchadnezzar, who now becomes the world's first truly great dictator. The first global dictator, Nebuchadnezzar, This is the year Jehoiakim and Judah were subjugated to Babylon, had to now uh, pay into Babylon, had to serve Babylon. It was also the year of the first Jewish deportation to Babylon. That first group, the cream of the crop, really, if you will, the Daniels of Judah, were all taken off these young men into Babylon to be trained up and raised up as good Babylonians. 605 B.C. is what we could call the beginning of the end. Verse 1 of chapter 36 tells us, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll, and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. And note that, that's the grace of God. That is always why God warns ahead of time. It's why the Bible talks about hell. Not because God wants to prepare us to go there, but He wants to warn us against it. He gives fair warning far in advance that people might repent, might turn around, might return to Him. And if we do so, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. That quickly, that simply. Verse 4, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So note that this is the word of the Lord. This scroll that... The Lord inspires Jeremiah to speak and he speaks and dictates to Baruch and Baruch writes it down. This is Bible. This is Holy Scripture. This is God's Word that Jeremiah is commanded to accurately handle, to rightly divide. Baruch. Baruch is Jeremiah's scribe and his personal agent. He produces this as a scroll, as a book. He will run some errands. We'll see him as an assistant almost to Jeremiah. But I want you to understand that though the Lord calls Jeremiah to write this book of Scripture, what you hold in your hands is not the book that the Lord told Jeremiah to write. He says, write this down. I want this prophecy. This, in fact, is a first copy that Jeremiah is told to write. What we have is a second copy. And you'll see why. 
Because it was at first accurately handled, but then it was wrongly divided. Verse 5. Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am restricted. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. We don't know why Jeremiah was restricted. Only that he was, at this time, barred from going into the temple. He's not allowed to go in and worship. Probably because his messengers were rather unpopular. And people didn't want to hear from him. So he was barred. And he tells Baruch, you need to take this in for me. Verse 6, so you go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. Why were they having a fast day? This probably isn't one of the feasts or the usual fast. It was probably a fast Jehoiakim and some of the leaders called for because they knew things weren't looking good. Because they knew the nation was in trouble. So as they gather to fast, it's kind of a phony fast. They think if we do this religious thing, it's going to save us. Brothers and sisters, you know religion does not ever save you. But they call for a fast, and so he says, Baruch, I want you to go in there. And also you shall read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. Perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord. And everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. So this is written in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now it's the fifth year. The fast is happening, and off we go. Then verse 10, Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gimariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house to all the people, just to be sure you know where he was. Yeah. Now when Mikayahu, and I know it doesn't look like that, but that's the pronunciation of this guy's name. Mikayahu. Kind of like Netanyahu, but put Mika instead of Netan. Right? When Mikayahu, the son of Gimariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he went down to the king's house, to the scribe's chamber. And behold, all the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the scribe, and Delaiah, the son of Shimeiah, and Elnatan, the son of Akbor. Akbor, who I think flew with Han Solo in the battle against the Death Star. I'm not sure. And Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah. Now this Zedekiah is not the king. This is a temple official. And all the other officials. Right? Mikayahu, verse 13, declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read from the book to the people. And then all the officials sent Yehudi, the son of Netaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, <laughs> to Barak saying take in your I could have so much fun with these names but we're just going to keep moving here okay Kushi <laughs> take in your hand the scroll from which you have read to the people and come so Baruch the son of Neriah took the scroll in his hand and went to them and they said to him sit down please and read it to us so get the picture all these temple officials just named begin to hear they hear from one of their own. They hear from Mikayahu. He comes running in. He goes, you've got to hear what Jeremiah is having his assistant Baruch proclaim. These prophetic words, apparently, to the people. You guys need to hear this. So they invite Baruch in to do it. And so Baruch's going to read the whole thing to them again. Verse 16. When they had heard all the words, they turned in fear to one another. 
and said to Baruch, We will surely report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? In other words, did this come from Jeremiah? And Baruch said to them, He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. In other words, don't blame me, man. I'm just the messenger. (laughs) Then the official said to Baruch, Go, hide yourself, you and Jeremiah, and do not let anyone know where you are. These officials are, for the first moment, we have kind of a glimmer of light here in the book of Jeremiah. We have a group of guys, upon hearing the prophecy of Jeremiah, who say, this is serious business. They are rightly dividing the word of truth. They are accurately handling it. They're respectfully considering it. They knew the unsettling nature of this message would also, however, be dangerous for Baruch and Jeremiah. Because they knew Jehoiakim well. His reputation preceded him. It could be said of him what was written in Proverbs 18, verses 1 and 2. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Contrast that with Jeremiah. Jeremiah wasn't speaking his mind. He was revealing the intentions of the Lord. He was speaking God's word. He was saying what God wanted to have revealed. Jeremiah, as you know early in the book, kind of railed against this. Didn't want to have to bring these words. It frightened him. It was hard. He knew how upsetting what he had to preach would be. And, and he, he kept going back to the Lord and struggling with his whole calling as a prophet. Well, by now, he's not struggling anymore. He knows his calling. And as he sends Baruch, he knows that this is not his mind but the mind of the Lord that's being revealed. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says something similar. He says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities, not on earth, but in the heavenly places. What a calling. And I hope you understand that part of the role of the church is to declare as we receive God's grace in faith, to declare the manifold riches of that grace to those who are in the heavenly places. Angels who long to understand grace because they don't need grace. They're created to worship God. They're created in His presence. They know Him, but they haven't had to have grace, redemption, forgiveness, the blood of Jesus. We do. And as God describes grace to the angels, they're like... Don't get it. (laughs) And so part of what's happening with the church, I'm convinced, is a heavenly lesson that is eternal in nature so that all created heavenly beings might understand the concept of the grace and the goodness of God. So we're doing that, and Paul says, "That's, that's my calling. Rightly dividing the word of truth, he says in another place, it's my calling, the revelation of grace via the church and the administration of Jesus Christ. That is His coming rule, His authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. The Word has always been sent to reveal God's intentions, never to confuse us. 
The Word is there for our eyes to be opened that we might understand and know God better. Not that we could be confused. Well, then why are people confused? Because they're not reading the Word. Because they pull a Scripture out here, and the Scripture by itself, out of context, may be confusing. But you study the Word, you pour into the Word, and the Word pours into us, washes us, and opens our eyes, and makes things absolutely clear. We study the Word to help us think God's way instead of man's way. But what does Jehoiakim do with this message? Well, his temple officials rightly divide the word of truth. He wrongly divides the word of truth. Verse 20. So they went to the king in the court. But they had deposited the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and they reported all the words to the king. Well, then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and Jehudi read it to the king as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him, and when Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife. This is wrongly dividing the word of truth. Literally. He cuts it with a pen knife and throws it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. This would be a small brass grill holding coals or wood to keep this winter house warm. And he throws the torn up, tattered scroll in there that he himself has cut up. This is what the king does. And yet the king, verse 24, and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Even though Elnatan and Delaiah and Gemariah pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Yeramiel the king's son, Saraiah the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah the son of Abdiel to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But, and I love this, the Lord hid them. You ain't going to find them. I've got them hidden. Some don't want to hear the word of truth. You can present the word to them and they just would as easily cut it up with a knife. I don't need to hear it. It's too convicting. It's too provocative. It is too revealing. And so Jehoiakim cut and burned the word because I believe it cut and burned his own conscience. Because it was a word he did not want to hear. It ran counter to his culture. And it did. The culture of Jehoiakim coming on the heels of Josiah. Remember, Josiah, the great king, who restored greatness to Israel. The last time Israel, or Judah, would be great was under Josiah. Josiah has a son, Jehoahaz. He becomes the, the replacement king. He's gone in three months, taken into captivity in Egypt. And then Jehoiakim rises to the throne. I can do this right. I will continue the glory and the greatness of Josiah. Not recognizing that his own father loved the word of God rightly handled the word of truth. When he heard the word of the scroll of the book, brought out, discovered in the temple, brought to him, Josiah rent his garments with tears in his eyes, called for the people, restored all of the feasts and the Sabbath and the Passover, did right by the word, accurately handled the word of truth. But his son Jehoiakim did not, because it cut him. The Word of God is living and active. You know the verse, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
Hebrews 4.12. Verse 13 tells us there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Open and laid bare. Have I told you this before? That the Greek words open and laid bare, open literally means naked. Laid bare is a hunter's term for flaying an animal. For cutting open and getting the skin off and cutting the innards out and cleaning the animal. That's the word that's used. That's what God's word does. It goes right to the heart of the matter. It gets past all of our flesh and goes right into the conscience, right to the spirit to deal with who we are. Jehoiakim doesn't want to hear it. Burn the message! Seize the prophet! But you know what happens. The word just keeps coming. Verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll and the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah saying, Take again another scroll. And write on it all the former words which were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, so he's going to add this to the scroll now, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will make man and beast cease from it? Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out into the heat of the day and the frost of the night. Remember, that's how Jehoiakim dies probably captured and on his way to captivity and they just kill him and toss him on the side of the road like a dead donkey. That's how the Bible describes his death. Verse 31, I will also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity and I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them but they did not listen. Well, then Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah the scribe, and he wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. And that is the book that you now have in your hands. This is now the Jeremiah that we're reading from. More added to it. And of course, more will be added over the coming days, over the coming time. But you get to hold the deluxe, expanded, complete prophecies of Jeremiah. Thank you, Jehoiakim. (laughs) The king tried to divide the word and learned that his little Swiss army pocket knife was no match for the sword of the word of God. And you can try to put it out. You can try to cut the word of God. Some do. You know, they cut and paste. They take what they like and they cut out what they don't like. Doesn't work. The word keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. You can't reduce the eternal truth to ashes. As Brian prayed, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't stop him. This irrepressible, unstoppable force. Last week we saw that you can't incarcerate the Word of God. This week we discover you can't incinerate the Word of God. It just keeps coming back. And, and you know, we do so much better just to receive it. Just to say, alright, alright Lord, I will read it and I will take you at your word. <laughs> Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. In 1 Peter 24, he says, The grass withers, as we sang earlier, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. <laughs> and then Peter adds, and this is the word which was preached to you. This is the word you have. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we either take Him at His word or we don't. But if we don't, understand, you can't cut it and you can't burn it 
It just keeps coming back. Part of the reason I think that Jeremiah jumps back 21 years at this point in his prophetic message is because he wants to emphasize again the endurance of the Word of God. That all these things that God had said 21 years before would take place did in fact take place. In fact, by the time that we read this, in, if you could follow a somewhat of a chronology of Jeremiah, by the time we get to chapter 36, Jehoiakim is dead and gone. It's already a done deal. So we get here and we read this and we go, oh yeah, I guess God's Word does stand. And the man who sets himself against God's Word does fall. The Word of God is irrepressible. No king, no ruler, no law of man can keep it down. So be encouraged. Because I know we're seeing a lot of laws written right now. And those laws are claiming that the Word of God is hate speech. And they're claiming that the Word of God is irrelevant. And they're claiming that the Word of God no longer stands. And they're claiming wrong. You cannot hold the Word of God down. And praise the Lord, we don't even have to worry about that because God is going to take care of it. All we need to do is trust Him, believe Him. The Word of truth always comes true. Chapter 37. Now Zedekiah, the son of Josiah. See, now we've jumped ahead to the last king. Okay, Back to Zedekiah. Son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in the place of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Yet King Zedekiah sent Yehukal, the son of Shilamiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, the priest, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray to the Lord on our behalf. Really? It's just amazing to me. Jeremiah was still coming in and going out among the people, for they had not yet put him in the prison. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army had sent out from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who had been besieging Jerusalem heard the report about it, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. And that happened back in chapter 34. We studied that. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me, to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us. For they will not go. For even if you had defeated the entire army of Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. So God is now saying, again, my message is unstoppable. You may think you can change it, but it is going to happen. Don't deceive yourselves. In verse 3, what we see, going back there, is a weak attempt on Zedekiah's part to gain some favor. And you pray to the Lord for us. They're not listening. He and his officials, his cabinet, they're not listening to a single thing the Lord is saying. But he is still playing a little game of pretense. Pray for us, would you, Jeremiah? Here's the problem. It wasn't a prayer of repentance. It was a prayer of tolerance. In other words, Lord... Please bless my plans. Please bless my procedures. Lord, please bless us in the way that we are doing things. 
Remember the Lord had already told Jeremiah three times, don't pray for this people. Don't you do it. Jeremiah 7.16, Jeremiah 11.14, and Jeremiah 14.11, don't pray for the people. I'm not listening, declares the Lord. But like so many people before Zedekiah and after Zedekiah, people will come before the Lord seeking, and I hate to even say it this way, but seeking a compliant God. See, that's what we want. Oh, maybe not us. But that's what humanity wants. That's what the sinful, rebellious human person wants. I want a compliant God. I want a God who does things my way. I want a God who answers to me. I want a God who has all the power that I don't have, but I want Him to do what I tell Him to do. Isn't that pathetic? It's ridiculous. It's arrogant. And so Zedekiah asked for such prayers. Let me ask you this. Does the Lord hear prayers like that? Does the Lord regard the prayers of a rebellious man or a rebellious woman? Proverbs 28 verse 9 says, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We don't pray to gain some kind of holy acquiescence. I'm going to pray and if I do so, perhaps God will do what I want Him to do. That's just not how it works. We don't pray to commandeer His will. We pray to come under His will. As Lewis said, I don't pray to change God's heart. I pray to change, or God's heart, I pray to change mine. Prayer is about me subjugating myself to the Lord, being subject to Him, bowing before Him in His greatness and saying, Lord, whatever You have for me, that's what I want. That doesn't mean you don't bring your will or your petitions to the Lord, absolutely. But you do so in a spirit of humbleness and a spirit of acceptance. Lord, whatever you say, here's what I'm asking, but I place it before you, you know best. Whatever you have is what I want. And yet people who claim no belief in God or who shun belief in God pray like Zedekiah all the time. Why even ask for prayers for someone whose word you don't accept? Oh, I don't believe all the Bible, but I pray. 1 Peter 3.12 Peter quotes from Psalm 34.15 He says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. Now, if that's true, then I would be in a world of hurt, except for Jesus, who makes me righteous. So it's not by my righteousness that God looks to me and hears my prayer, but it's by the righteousness of Christ that has washed me, cleansed me, and made me righteous before God. Jesus did that, not me. And so the Lord hears, He attends to the prayers of the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, we can't have it both ways. We can't live our way and be in rebellion to the Lord and expect Him to hear our prayers. He doesn't. Do you realize how many prayers are just floating out there in the heavens? Unheard by God? Unresponded to? Unattended? There is only one, I'm convinced there's only one prayer that is truly heard by the Lord of someone who is at some point in their life not a believer or in rebellion. And that's the prayer of repentance. He hears that prayer. And that is the first prayer of faith. The prayer of repentance. All other prayers are empty words. Well, verse 11 continues on. It happened when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army that Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to take 
to, to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some property there among his people. But while he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard, whose name was Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was there. And he arrested Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You're going over the Chaldeans. In other words, traitor. But Jeremiah said, A lie. I'm not going over to the Chaldeans. Yet they would not listen to him. So Arijah arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him. And they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into a prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. He was there a long time. In prison. Jeremiah was not, by the way, being held in some dude's spare room. Okay, This house of Jonathan was retrofitted, converted into a maximum security prison. And we kind of know that because of the language that's used here. The word prison in verse 15 is a combination of two words. Bayit, which is house, and esur, which is jail. So, jailhouse. So the word prison means jailhouse. The word jail here, or, I'm sorry, dungeon in verse 16. Dungeon is a combination of the word bayit, also house, and bur, which means a pit, or a cistern, or a well. And then, of course, verse 16 talks about the vaulted cell. Well, the vaulted cell, the word is chanut, and that is a curved roof. So at some place in this house, that is a retrofitted prison, there's a curved roof cistern that is very deep and is used to hold the most dangerous of prisoners. If you've been to Israel on one of, your, on one of our tours, you've seen this in the house of Caiaphas a cistern that has become a holding or had become a holding tank, a cell. It's where we're pretty sure Jesus was held in the house of Caiaphas on the night of his arrest and betrayal. It's similar to that. A pit in the midst of a house retrofitted as a maximum security prison. Psalm 88, verse 4. I believe the Spirit of Christ gave the psalmist, inspired the psalmist these words, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. That's where Jeremiah is now. In this security prison, deep in a pit, can't get out, he's starving there, and as a matter of fact, from verses further on down, if he were to be left there, he would surely die. But you might ask the question, why was Jeremiah going out of the city in the first place? (laughs) Where are you headed, Jeremiah? What's going on with this? Some scholars suggest he really was trying to escape, and got caught. And in getting caught, says, no, 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 I'm not trying to leave, no, I wouldn't go, you know, making up a, actually is lying and trying to sneak off, defecting to Babylon, or perhaps stupidly fleeing to his hometown of Anatot to see if he can hide out there. That's completely out of character for Jeremiah. It doesn't fit the prophet. It doesn't fit what's going on. It doesn't fit his knowledge of what is about to happen and what will come. It doesn't fit his trust in the Lord who said, you will not go down in all this. So that's completely bogus. Just some guy trying to make something fit. Others wonder if he was leaving to check out the land that he redeemed from his cousin, Hanamel. We read that story last week. 
Chapter 32 talks about the, um, the kinsman redeemer, the Gael, who buys the land that the kinsman or his relative is losing. He's losing the land. You'll buy it. We can keep it within the family. And so he buys some land. The problem is this incident actually precedes, precedes the imprisonment during which Jeremiah bought the land. Okay? So in other words, there's another imprisonment that's about to come. And when Jeremiah is in that imprisonment, that's when he buys the land. It hasn't happened yet. So that can't be why he's leaving Jerusalem. So why is he leaving Jerusalem? Well, there's a clue in the language here. Back in verse 12, Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some of the property there among the people. Take possession, verse 12. It's a common Hebrew phrase, halak. And halak means to divide, as in to divide or to accurately handle an inheritance. To handle his inheritance. What is Jeremiah actually doing here? Gang, he knew the time was near. He knew they were running out, getting down to these last few days of, of any kind of freedom there in Jerusalem, coming near to the end, and in knowing that, he's going to Anatot to settle his affairs. In other words, to get his house in order. That's why he was going. And his intentions, I believe, would be to get his house in order and come back to Jerusalem for the predicted fall that the Lord said would happen. Getting his house in order. Is yours? Have you settled your affairs here on earth? In other words, are you ready to go? I've told you uh, this a few years ago actually. Many, many years ago when I was in youth ministry in Virginia. I got a call from a good friend of mine and, and he said, Rick, get your house in order. Like, why? What's up? He goes, Well, I just heard this story that apparently just happened. It was one of these, you know, things that go around about someone appeared on the side of the road and said the trumpet's about to sound and then disappeared, and the woman who heard this didn't know where he went. And, and so it may have happened. Trumpet's about to sound. But my friend Darren said, I'm getting my house in order. Trumpet's about to sound. Now's the time. You know, freaked me out, you know, for a day or two, and then I settled back into life. Is your house in order? Are you ready to go? The time is near. And I know saying this on a Wednesday night, chances are most of you know this, but I'll say it anyway. Don't wait to be ready for the day. Know that First Peter 4.13 says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. The end is near. It's going to get harder as we get closer, but rejoice in that because it just means we're closer. That His coming is nigh at any time. If your house is in order, be advised, however, that like Jeremiah, just simply settling your affairs in anticipation of the coming of the Lord may cause some people to want to shut you up. I'm just going to get things ready because I know what's coming. We don't want to know what's coming. You're going to jail. And they throw him in this prison. They drop him down in this cistern. I think the officials honestly were looking for any excuse to shut up Jeremiah. And they found one. He's leaving the city. We got it. Lock him up. You might wonder, if people shut me up or shut me off, how will I speak the truth to them? As with Jeremiah, he's in prison now. 
Paul, thrown into prison. You must wonder, if that was me and I was thrown into prison, I'd be like, Lord, I'm out preaching the Gospel. I'm a missionary for the cause and you're tossing me in prison? How can I speak the Word from here? And we were talking about this the other night, weren't we, Glenn? That most of Paul's letters were written from prison. And the greatest teaching that we've got coming out of Paul came out of prison. Praise the Lord he went to prison. The revelation of John. In exile, much of the prophecies of Jeremiah, the important ones, Jeremiah 31 through 34, the prophecies of the coming end and the glorious kingdom and the new heart, the new covenant, all of that came while he was in prison. But if people shut you off, listen, you're preparing for the coming of Christ. You're living that way. It becomes constant and, and clear to those around you. And they say, I, I just don't want to be around you. I don't want to hear anymore. What do you do? Peter says in 1 Peter 2.15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What do you do when people will no longer listen? You just keep doing the right thing. You keep looking for Jesus, you keep living for Jesus, you keep walking in the Spirit, and you let your actions, rather than your words, speak the truth. Well, verse 17. Now King Zedekiah sent and took him out. And in his palace, the king secretly asked him and said, Is there a word from the Lord? Are you getting a sense of the character of Zedekiah? Wishy-washy, weak, waffling. And Jeremiah said, There is! And then he said, You will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. (laughs) He just pulled him out of prison. And this is the word? I'll read on. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, In what way have I sinned against you, or against your servants, or against this people, that you have put me in prison? Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against your land? Where are they now? All the false prophets. Because obviously they were wrong, he's saying. But now please listen, O my Lord the King. Please let my petition come before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe that I may not die there. It's a serious situation in that cistern. Jeremiah was in bad shape. He knew if he went back there it would be his death. Verse 21, Then King Zedekiah gave commandment and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street, uh, right next to Sherlock Holmes' house, until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. They moved Jeremiah from starvation, now in solitary, to daily bread in the courtyard guardhouse. Minimum security. And from there, Jeremiah is now able to preach the word. And the people are able to hear from the prophet once again. Verse 1 of chapter 38. Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pashkur, and Jukal, the son of Shilamiah, and Pashkur, the son of Malkijah. What is up with the names tonight? <laughs> Mikayahu. And now Malkisha and all these words, all these names. And I sat down this week and I'm, I'm reading them going, okay, i, I, I got to be able to speak these at least somewhat correctly. I'm probably butchering them as I go. But, but I actually asked the Lord, why? Why do we have to have all these names in here just to stumble over? Gang, listen. Don't miss that God keeps an exact accounting. 
that He knows every single name. That the day of final judgment will come and what we have before us is an indication that He doesn't miss anyone's name, that they're all written down. That He knows who was speaking, when, what they were doing, where they were involved, their deeds, their busyness. God knows it all. He's fully aware of it. He keeps account of it. The day of final judgment will come and books will be opened. The Bible tells us the same word that we're called to rightly divide, accurately handle, tells us that books will be opened and names will be read and deeds will be declared. Revelation 20.12, look it up. And we can wait and be judged on that day by our deeds or we can have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life right now by faith in Jesus Christ, washed by the blood. And Jesus said in Luke 10.20, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So, Malkijah may have his name right here in Scripture, but my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where it needs to be. So Jeremiah keeps on preaching, and once again it's going to land him in a pit. These guys heard him speaking all these words to the people, saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. And I told you before, that's treason talk to the people in Jerusalem. And that's probably why they snagged Jeremiah heading out the gate. Because they figured, well, he's telling us to go out, now he's going out. So obviously it's treason. Not if the Lord tells you it's not. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Well, then the officials said to the king, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. Again, it's like they think his prophecies superstitiously are going to come true because he's speaking them, so if we can shut him up, then they won't happen. And that's not prophecy. Don't read the Bible. Don't say what the Bible says. As long as we stay quiet about it, then we don't have to worry about it. But as we've already seen, the Word keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. Well, King Zedekiah, verse 5, says, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. What a weakling! The king can do nothing. He's the king! Man up! Be a king! Well, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchisha, the king's son. So now, Jeremiah's in the pit again, looking around, oh, this looks familiar which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. But, Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, and Ebed Melech went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king... These men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. And he will die right where he is because of the famine. For there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take thirty men from here under your authority. And notice that. Under your authority. Not mine. 
I don't want to have anything to do with this. You guys just take care of this. And take them from here and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took them in under his authority and went into the king's palace and took uh, to a place beneath the storeroom and took from there worn out clothes and worn out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn out clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And so they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him up out of the cistern. And Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. So the worn out clothes and rags, they tied together into ropes. Threw these down, grabbed hold of Jeremiah, pulled him out. Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian saved Jeremiah's life. Ebed-Melech. Oh, you got to ask, what does Ebed-Melech mean? And his name means servant of the king. The servant of the king. This is a beautiful picture. Jeremiah's life is in the pit, in the muck and the mire and the mud of an old cistern. He's stuck there. He would have died there if not for the servant of the king who came and got him out. Same with us. The servant of the king pulled me out of the cistern. It's the servant of the king who got me out of the mud of the pit. Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says, Behold my servant, speaking of Jesus. In verse 6 of that chapter of that song, that servant song, he says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That's what the servant of the king does. And this Ebed-Melech is just another picture for us, a type of Jesus. Oh, he wasn't Jesus. He was a real guy who was serving Zedekiah. But the picture is stunning. That he goes and he gets Jeremiah out of the pit. That's what Jesus does. He gets us out. He saves us from our dark places. Well, verse 14, Then King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah... I'm going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. And then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. We've been around this block a few times, Zedekiah. I seem to recall the last time I talked to you about something, I ended up in the pit. And you want me to talk to you again? But King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives, who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. You know what's amazing? Zedekiah believed in the Lord. He was just weak. He was just wimpy. He believed, but he didn't have faith. He didn't trust the Lord. Oh, he accepted God created, and he accepted that God was their God, but that he could do anything about the situation, or that he was trustworthy, Zedekiah just was checked out. Verse 17, Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live, this city will not be burned with fire, and you and your household will survive. Even in the eleventh hour, the word of the Lord is... Repent and I'll save your life. Repent, I'll save the city. Repent, I'll save your family. 
But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire. And you yourself will not escape from their hand. Then King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, for they may give me over into their hand and they will abuse me. (laughs) Wamp! But Jeremiah said, They will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I am saying to you, that it may go well with you and you may live. But if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which the Lord has shown me. Then behold, all of the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. You know what they're going to do with them. And those women will say, Your close friends have misled and overpowered you while your feet were sunk in the mire. They turned back. So, ironic. Jeremiah was just pulled out of the mire in the pit. But now Zedekiah is being told, You're going to sink into the mucky mire of your own weakness. Because you're not willing to listen to the Lord. And we see this in Zedekiah. This Man, he just feared the truth. And he feared the Jews who were already in captivity. And he feared his own officials. He seems to have feared everyone but the Lord. So Jeremiah says, you're going to end up in the pit. You're going to end up in the mire of your own wimpiness, of your own weakness. And you know what? What we see in this is the strength to truly stand up. The strength to not be weak. To stand in the name of the Lord, even against, note this in verse 23, even against close friends who mislead or try to overpower you. The strength to stand for the truth comes in the name of the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. What are you going to do when the time comes in this country that certain laws go head to head with your faith in Jesus or your belief in the Bible? What are you going to do? Are you going to waffle? Or will you have the strength to stand? I've I've had this conversation with the Lord. Lord, what if they come for me? (laughs) What if I'm threatened with jail just for preaching your word? What then? And this conversation I've had with the Lord keeps bringing me back to Him saying, I will be your strength. I will be your power if you look to me. You will stand in that day. But if you look to yourselves, if you trust in yourself... If you huddle together as a church and hide out, you're on your own. He will give us the strength to stand should that day come before He calls us home. Verse 23, They will also bring out all your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned with fire. And then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no man know about these words and you will not die. But if the officials hear that I have talked with you and come to you and say to you, tell us now what you said to the king and what the king said to you, do not hide it from us and we will not put you to death, then you are to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. 
See what's going on? Zedekiah is saying, don't tell them what we talked about. You tell them that you were just asking me to keep you out of jail. That's, that's all you share. Again, Zedekiah fears everybody but God. Well, verse 27, all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. And so he reported to them, note this, in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded, and they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. Did Jeremiah lie? By withholding information? There are commentaries out there, not many, but a few, that actually claim that this was an ethical failure on the part of Jeremiah. That he bent his will to Zedekiah, that when he was questioned about what their conversation was, he he waffled himself. He didn't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I think I'd be careful judging Jeremiah, especially at this point in his career. Adam Clark put it this way. He said, he told the truth. Nothing but the truth, but not the whole truth. So it's not that he lied. He just didn't tell everything. He withheld some information. So the question then is, is the omission of the whole truth still a lie? Can you tell the truth, but not all the truth? Guys, let me ask you this. If your wife comes in wearing the ugliest dress you've ever seen, do you tell her the whole truth? Or perhaps just some of the truth. You know what? You're just beautiful no matter what you wear. (laughs) Thankfully, my wife has no ugly clothes. So, Actually, probably the reality is I have no tasting clothing myself. We'll just leave it right there. Is the omission of the whole truth a lie? I think it's important to understand. Because after all, Jeremiah, in this conversation, he did petition Zedekiah. He did ask not to be sent back to the prison at Jonathan's house. And the king simply asked him to limit his story to that. The info was on an as-needs-to-know basis. And the officials of Zedekiah's court didn't need to know what was discussed between Jeremiah and the king. Let's take it a step further. Jesus didn't always give the whole truth. Jesus, who is the truth, at times withheld some of the truth. Really? Yeah. John 2.24, Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. People were getting real excited about the miracles of Jesus first time He's in Jerusalem. But He doesn't go the full way. He doesn't say, yes, I am the Messiah. He holds that back. Why? Because it was not the right time. In Mark 11, when the chief priests and the scribes questioned Jesus' authority. By what authority are you doing these things? Remember what he said? Tell you what, you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And if you give me the answer to that, then I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And they, they couldn't answer the question. They knew if they said from men, they'd be in trouble with the people. They knew if they said from heaven, that they would admit something they didn't believe. They, like Zedekiah, feared everything, everyone but the Lord. And so Jesus said to them, Mark 11.33, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He withheld some truth. And I think this is the way we understand it. Limiting the information is not a lie. Unless, of course, you're a child and your parent is asking you for the whole truth. 
Limiting the information is not a lie when you know, as Jeremiah knew, that speaking the whole truth could harm yourself or others, then perhaps you don't speak the whole. You, you speak truth. You always speak truth. Let's put it in Paul's, Paul's language. We are no longer to be children, Ephesians 4.14, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every kind of every wind of doctrine, the trickery of men, the craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So choose your words wisely. A non-believing friend, a rebellious family member comes up and says, So you think I'm going to hell? The whole truth? As of right now? Yes, you are. But that might not be the best thing to say. (laughs) Perhaps instead you should say, I know I don't want you to go there. I know that if you would accept Jesus right now, you don't even have to think twice about it. You'll be saved. I know where salvation is. See, that's that's truth. Sometimes you don't tell the whole truth. You just tell what truth you need to to speak in love. Choose your words wisely. Now we come to 586 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem. It falls quickly. Verse 1, chapter 39. Now when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah king of Judah in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his army came to Jerusalem and they laid siege to it. Why did they do it? To weaken the city. They laid siege, they cut off the supply lines, wait till the people were starving, wait till the people were weak, and then they could flood into the city and they lose less men in the conquest. Verse 2, in the eleventh year now of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. In the fourth month. Based on the religious calendar, the fourth month would land right about our August time frame. Gang, it is the month of Av. The month of Av. This is the ninth of Av. The ninth day, the ninth of Av, or what the Jewish people call Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is still celebrated. It's memorialized every year. The ninth of Av every year, there is silence in Jerusalem. There is quiet across Israel. The Jewish people pause to remember Tisha B'Av because that day on the Jewish calendar marks tragedy after tragedy after tragedy for the Jewish people across the centuries. It's really remarkable. The Mishnah refers to Tisha B'Av as the five calamities. Because on the ninth day of the month of Av, the rebellion happened at Kadesh Barnea that caused the children of Israel to wander another 40 years in the wilderness. They believe it happened on the ninth of Av. The fall of Jerusalem and its destruction of the first temple here in 586 B.C. on the ninth of Av. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 was on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. The complete ruin and leveling of Jerusalem one year later in A.D. 71 was on Tisha B'Av. And the fifth calamity, according to Mishnah, was the crushing of the Bar Kokhba revolt by the Emperor Hadrian in 135 A.D. happened on the 9th of Av. That revolt, you Bible students know, caused Jerusalem to be renamed Aelia Capitolina, and Judah was then renamed for the first time Palestine. That's where the name Palestine came from. A Roman emperor slapping the Jewish people in the face and calling the land now Philistina. 
Philistine country. That's the name. Of course, you can add to this, Jewish historians have recognized other tragedies on this same date. On Tisha B'Av, 1290 A.D., the Jews were all expelled from England. On that day in 1492, while Columbus sailed the ocean blue, on Tisha B'Av, the Jews were expelled from Spain. On the 9th of Av, 1670, the last, Druze, uh, the last Jews were driven out of Vienna. 1670. In 1914, World War I broke out on Tisha B'Av, which set the stage for the German resentment of the Jews that led to World War II and the Holocaust. On this very day in 1940, Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler presented his final solution to the Jewish problem to the Nazi party. Two years later, in 1942, on Tisha B'Av, Adolf Hitler initiated the massive deportation of the Warsaw Ghetto, where hundreds of thousands of Jews were sent off to the Nazi death camp of Treblinka. All of this on the ninth day of the month of Av. And nothing like this had ever happened in Israel's history prior. 1,500 years they had never had this kind of tragedy this day, Tisha B'Av, 586 B.C., was just the beginning of the Jewish experience for the next 2,500 years right up to present day. Verse 3. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate, Nergal Sar Etzer, Samgar Nabu, Sar Sakim, the Rab Saras, Nergal saw Etzer the Rab Mag and all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon, strange names, bizarre titles. Jeremiah gives all of these in Chaldean. These are the Babylonian names and official titles. And he tells us they set up their headquarters there at the middle gate. That is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 115 tells us they will come and they will each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. Verse 4. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, they fled. Oh, Zedekiah fled? That's a surprise, isn't it? And went out of the city at night, by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and he went out toward the Arabah, as the Jordan Valley. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and they seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamat, and he passed sentence on him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. By the way, that sounds brutal, but that is the way they did it. When a king, when a nation in that day and age conquered another nation, they would take the king and often they would put out his eyes. In fact, the conquering king often did it himself with his own fingers, which is dig out the eyes of the conquered king. The Chaldeans also burned with fire the king's palace and the houses of the people, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. As for the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had gone over to him, and the rest of the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, carried them into exile in Babylon. But some of the poorest people who had nothing, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, left behind in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields 
at that time. The fall of Jerusalem is so significant. It's recorded four times in Scripture. We have it here in Jeremiah 39. We have it in 2 Kings 25 in more complexity. 2 Chronicles 36 gives more of the picture. And in greater detail, Jeremiah chapter 52 kind of closes the book with a summation of the history of the fall of Jerusalem. But what's really weird to me is we finally got here, you know, building up to this moment, this epic moment in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 39, fall of Jerusalem, and that's all we get. That's it. It's over. Jerusalem at this point is burning. Now you will hear a lot more about this in the book of Lamentations. Five chapters of Jeremiah mourning as he watches the city burn. But at this point, we're done. Except that Jeremiah ends this section with a different focus. Verse 11, Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, Take him and look after him and do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he tells you. Why would Nebuchadnezzar do that? Because he agrees with the messages of Jeremiah. Right? Hey, this guy's been saying that we're coming to conquer all along. I like this guy. Take care of him. And so Nebuchadnezzar in verse 13, the captain of the bodyguard sent word, along with Nebuchadnezzar, the Rob Saras, and Nurgle Saretzer, the Rob Mog. <laughs> they sound like a 60's band, don't they? The Rob Mogs. Yeah, all, the young, all the leading officials of the king of Babylon. They even sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the guardhouse and they entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him home. And so he stayed among the people. Now, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was confined in the court of the guardhouse, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, and say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for disaster and not for prosperity, and they will take place before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. And you will not be given over into the hand of the men whom you dread. For I will certainly rescue you. You will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as booty because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. Ebed-Melech, the servant of the king, now is rescued. He came, he saved Jeremiah's life from the muddy cistern, pulling him out of the pit. And now the picture, I love this, comes full circle. Ebed-Melech, the servant of the king, is now himself delivered by the king and his own life becomes booty, plunder, the spoils of war. And it is yet a firmer picture of Jesus himself. Why do you say that? Isaiah 53 tells us, Isaiah, speaking of the greater servant of the king, says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In his death, Jesus comes and he pulls us out of the pit. In his resurrection, his life is given to him and our lives as well as plunder as spoils, as treasure. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight, and we thank You again for any opportunity we have to get pictures of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank You for coming as the servant of the King. 
We thank You for rescuing our lives from the pit. We praise You that in Your resurrection, Your life was given to You. And our lives in our resurrection given to You is a great treasure. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for all You have done, for what You are doing in us now, and for what You are about to do. And Lord, I pray that You will teach us continually until that day to accurately handle, to rightly divide the word of truth, so that in that day we will not be like Zedekiah, waffling and weak and wimpy. Lord, that we will stand on Your Word and stand in Your truth. You alone, Lord, are able to make us stand. And so we do so for You. We praise Your name in Jesus' name. Amen.